If hearing this episode is distressing for you, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Well, in my case, you literally turn yourself inside out trying to work out why you survived. Very few people have survived what Eric DeHart has. I think it was a test, a test of strength, a test of determination and a test of courage. 20 years ago, he lived through a terror strike on a Bali bar that killed 202 people from all over the world, including his mates. Hundreds more were left physically and mentally scarred and their loved ones back home feeling helpless. All their mates got together and there was one missing. They went back and climbed over bodies and body parts to get their mate out. Eric was on an end-of-footy season trip with Sydney's Coogee Dolphins. Within seven hours of arriving in Bali, almost half of them would be dead. I'm Ali Donaldson and this is Shockwaves, the Bali bombings. In this episode, you'll hear more from Eric DeHart, who we met in episode one, his search for his team, and how years later, in the age of social media, people have questioned why he's still telling his story. This is episode five, The Storytellers. The Sari Club, which is where, where it originally um, occurred, uh, was totally engulfed in flames. The opposite club, um, that too was engulfed in flames. There were vehicles on the road. In the hours up. after the blasts, amid the horror... People are burnt everywhere. There's an LPG container, there's people dead, there's everything. Eric heads to the team hotel to see if any of his mates have made it back. That's where one of their distraught dads back in Australia reaches him. And the phone was ringing. And I picked the phone up and I said, hi, Eric DeHart. And he said, yes, Eric, it's Patrick Yeo here. Can you tell me if Jared's OK? And I said, um, Mr Yeo, I never met him. And I said, Mr Yeo, I, uh, I, I don't know. So I'd say at this stage, no news is good news. He said, please, you've got to let me know if my boy's alive. And I knew then that my job was to I'd let the people know. I let the parents know whether their children were alive or dead. That then became your mission when you were there, wasn't it? Oh, it was, definitely, you definitely. really stood up I at thought, that point. I thought that you know, the least I owed these people was to let them know as soon as possible if their children were alive or they're just lying injured. Um, so I turned around and I went back out. I've interviewed Eric several times over the years. I first met him in the days after the attack in Bali when I was sent up to cover the atrocity for Network 10 Australia. And on that first meeting, I I didn't think he'd slept since the blast. He certainly hadn't stopped looking for his mates since he returned to the bomb site on the night. I had no idea how many people had been hurt at that stage. You've gone in, you've tried to find someone. At one stage, I bent down and I picked up a body part and kind of dropped it. It frightened me. I dropped it again and I went looking for someone that I can help. And at one stage, I just walked across the road from the Sari Club and I sat down on the gutter and I had my hands in my head like that, thinking. And I was thinking I'd let everyone down. 
that, you know, as the oldest one and the traveller, I mean, I should have had more control. I should have expected maybe something was going to happen. I should have done more. And that was, that's probably been a recurring theme. I should have done more. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Sitting at the abandoned Sari Club site 20 years on, I reflected on when I first met the survivors and those first few days after the bombs. There was just raw, raw grief. Like I have never encountered in my life and hope never to again. I was so aware it wasn't my grief, but I cried. I definitely cried with people, but I just kept feeling, how are they dealing with this? And people were so kind, so kind. I just saw the best of people in that time, the Australians, the Balinese, the other nationalities we met, grappling with something that was just beyond comprehension. At the time, we went to the hospital and there was just body after body after body and loved ones were having to try to identify them. It was just so sad. Back then, Eric was at Sanglar Hospital, where a makeshift morgue had been set up. And we walked into the morgue and it was just a sea of burned bodies. On the cement path, they had all the bodies laid out, just one row after row after row after row after row of bodies just lying there. And we went walking through that trying to find them. And um, people look different when they're dead. And they, these are blast victims too. Yeah. We walked past and didn't reckon anyone at all. Oh, they're not here. And then we thought, oh, let's go and take a close look. We started looking sort of for tattoos. So I turned around, I went into the next room. And the next room was probably twice as large as this room. And it was just litter beds on the ground and big shrouds of skin hanging off the litter beds. And there was probably about six inches of blood and water on the ground. And here's a doctor. Well, I later found out it was Dr Billy McNeil, an Australian guy, working on a body trying to save it. And I thought, well, Clint Thompson had a head, Sonic the Hedgehog tattoo on his arm. And um, we found that. We found the arm and then lying next to him with another couple of the guys and all that sort of stuff. So it was actually the tattoo that enabled us to identify him. I was there in Bali in 2002. I arrived 24 hours after the bombing to report for Network 10. For Australian holidaymakers, horror is turning to despair. Friends now realise they're going home alone. Everyone's going home as quick as they can. They just don't feel safe. It's just really sad to see it all happen. I'm just glad I'm going home to my parents and that I'm safe. So, yeah, I'm crying. When I arrived back from Bali on the Tuesday, I think it was, all the dolphins, boys were there, the girlfriends, the players, and a lot of people were there. And uh, I took the boys back, and they've walked out, and all the, the crowd just kind of shifted to see who was going to follow them out. And I came out, and the crowd kind of drooped. Their heads went down, and they sagged, and I burst into tears, and um, the guilt hit me really, really badly. And I thought I'd let everyone down. Ryan Thompson, the brother of Clint, who died in Bali, he just come up and he put me in a hug and he said, Eka, don't you dare cry. We needed someone like you to come back and let us know what had happened. You've got to look, you were here to tell us all, to let us know. 
and you know that, that was my role. I knew that was something that I had to do, not only for my own sense, but I had to represent the families. I had to try and relieve them of as much pressure as possible, so they could get on with their grieving. Over the years since the tragedy, Eric DeHart's often been called on to speak about it publicly. Many others no longer can or want to. I mean, understandably, it's just too triggering. Eric often does to save them the heartache. But talking about it has brought him a different pain. And in the world of social media, it's brought him crushing judgement. About three years ago, Eric and I met again down the beach in Sydney, to mark another anniversary. And I was so shocked when he told me how he now gets trolled every time he comments on Bali. Strangers say things to him like, when are you going to get over it? How much money are you making out of this? Or, um, you know, why do you trade on it? He claims even the Australian tax office had a go. You're on TV all the time, you must be making so much money out of this. I looked at him and said, where would I be making money? Or, you know, I remember... Um, the tax office rang up to get a query on a tax return one day and my secretary said, oh, no, he's at the um, Bali Memorials on the 12th of October. And they said, oh, isn't he over it yet? But the shockwaves of this event haven't ended for Eric. There's two things I hate. I hate the word closure because you never get closure. You learn to deal with it better, but you never get closure. It's always there. And the other thing I hate is if only must be the two most soul-destroying words in the world. Don't have any families. Go out and do all the things you want to do. If it doesn't work, fine. You know it doesn't work. You've answered that if-only question. So you don't have to try and live your life going, oh, if only you're so lucky, if only I had that. When I flew back to Bali this time, I was sitting next to a young girl, a 21-year-old, and we got chatting. She was a snowboarder, an Olympic snowboarder, a gold medalist. She was really impressive. And after a while, she asked me what I was doing, and I told her I was covering the 20th anniversary of the Bali bombings, and she didn't know what I was talking about. And I think that's one of the big reasons it's important to keep telling these stories, because new generations grow up and memories fade, and stories, history is forgotten. You know, there are people that say that, oh, your, your story keeps changing. I don't think my story's changed that much. Your brains are wonderful. Your mind and your brain are, are wonderful things that, that God gave us. And I think they store all this information inside our head. And as you get stronger and you get better and you get more able to handle it, you remember these things. That little dark door that you've locked them in, it, it opens it up a bit and things get out and you get it. And I don't think, unless you've been through that, that situation, you don't know because in order to survive, you've got to try and forget, right? And what a lot of people don't realise that is being a survivor is a life sentence. Coming back 20 years later, the day we went to the hospital and saw how much Sangla Hospital had changed, I think for the first time in my reporting career, and I've been reporting for about 31 years now, I had a panic attack. I just flashed back to that moment when we were there and saw everyone having to identify people and hope they wouldn't identify their loved ones and then hope beyond hope they would find them. 
I know for a lot of people, though, it all became too much uh, over the years and they're no longer with us. Here's Eric again. I've tried to let people know that these are my dark thoughts. I still have dark thoughts, yeah. I mean, there was one night, Sunday night, I, years ago, I ended up at the Gap. I was ready to jump off the Gap because the guilt had got too much for me. And it was a wild Sunday night. It was raining and all that sort of stuff. I was on the fence. I was just about ready to let go. I'd left a note in the car for my mum. And the clouds just parted and this moonlight just came straight through. And, you know, Maybe I wasn't serious enough, but I just took it as a sign that I had to continue trying to show the light. So, you know, I've been to that really dark stage and it's it's not a case you don't think, you're not thinking clearly. I mean, I could see life, my life like that. I wasn't aware of anything that was happening around me. I was looking at life strictly like that and I was shutting myself off from the world. You were saying to me a few weeks ago, you know that you're, in some ways, it's this very rare position you're in. You've been tested in life. Tell me about that. Well, I think uh, I've got this little pet theory that people don't know how much they are capable of or how strong they are because they've never been really tested. And I think that I'm fortunate because I know that I was tested, but I passed the test. And I think that gives you... Not so much a reason, but I think it gives you an ability to be able to take charge in that in future events and know that you were tested and you stood up. And that gives you a quite confidence to go through life and know that no matter what life throws at you, you're going to be confident of beating it. Because life has thrown things at you since. You have always stood up and spoken on behalf of what happened. It lives with me. It lives within me. Um, and... It is part of who I am. I am much more aware of the needs of people and I am much more aware of how I can help people. And one of the things I can help people is being there if they need me and being able to listen if they just want to talk. Um, And that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to show that, hey, we all have these moments. We all, have, we all collect baggage through life. Yeah, some of it's bigger baggage or shittier baggage than other people, but it happens. But the pro, way of processing it is the same. You have to look at it, accept it for what it is, and move on with it. I mean, I've accepted a long time ago, I'm no bad pet, so I've got to you know, deal with that problem myself. And, and that's what I do. But it's important that people realise you're not alone. What will you do, Eric, on the, on the 12th of this year? you know? Yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> I booked a trip to um, Morocco. <laughs> I'm going as far away from it as I can. You know, 20 years is enough. I did 15 years and I put myself out there for the people and stuff like that, but now, you know, now it's, it's my time. In the next episode of Shockwaves, The Bali Bombings, we hear from the youngest Australian survivor of the terror attack. She was just a child and how a group of extraordinary teenagers came to her aid at her darkest moments. And I don't know why it was, but just, yeah, having him there gave me some form of comfort. So I just said, can you just stay with me and talk to me? And so he just ended up staying with me the whole time that I was in Bali until I got air out. Shockwaves, The Bali Bombings is a co-production between Network 10 and Listener. 
Hosted, written, researched and produced by me, Ali Donaldson. Script editing by Jennifer Goggin and Jake Morecambe. Sound design and audio production by Dave Stein. Audio recorders, Owen Wynn, Ben Patrick, Nathan Hill, Jake Staunton and Carl Carousella. Ali Aitken is the Podcast Content Partnership Manager for Network 10. Melanie Withnall is Head of News and Information at Listener. If hearing this episode is distressing for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14.